Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everyone and welcome to today's Lunchtime Lecture. I'm really pleased to welcome Sebastian and Martin from Leasehold Knowledge Partnership, which is one of the uh, original ODI Startup Incubator alumni. And today the talk will be looking at the role of data or lack of and how it relates to building safety. It's just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, hopefully you saw on the slide at the beginning, this meeting is being recorded. Um, so please keep your cameras and microphones off through the duration of the talk. If you have any questions uh, that come to you during the presentation, please put them in the chat. And then once the presentation has finished, we will uh, invite you to turn your camera on and microphone and ask the question directly. Um, and yeah, I think that is everything from me on the housekeeping. So I will pass over to uh, Sebastian. Great. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, thanks everybody for, for coming to this. Um, I want to start off uh, also by thanking the Open Data Institute for being an unfailing ally of the Leasehold Knowledge Partnership and uh, for all its support given over, over many years. We're really proud to be associated with the ODI. I hope we've paid um, due recognition of that um, uh, in all our parliamentary meetings and from our MPs who've, who've um, acknowledged uh, the support of the, of the ODI in, in the various debates in, in Parliament. Uh, I'm just going to give an introduction to, to, to this talk. Martin, who is the Chair of Trustees at the Leasehold Knowledge Partnership, is going to do the main presentation. And I just want to explain why he's qualified to do so. First, uh, he's a leaseholder caught up in the cladding uh, scandal. Uh, second, he's the Chair of Charter Quay, which is an enfranchised site at Kingston Bridge in Surrey, which means that the flat owners own the building and the land there, which is unusual. Um, and that's collectively worth about 250 million pounds. So it's a responsible position that he has. And he's having to make all the decisions on many aspects, or together with his board, he's having to make decisions on, on aspects of this issue. And, and the third thing I'd like to point out is that um, Martin and I have been raising the um, cladding issue with government since the autumn of 2017, within six months of the tragedy at Grenfell in, in June. Uh, it's thanks to Martin and solely to Martin that the enormity of the cladding crisis was being raised with MPs in Parliament from 2017 onwards. Over the past 18 months, it's become a mainstream issue with hundreds of thousands of leaseholders uh, now impacted facing impossible bills and raising issues with the media. Uh, and that sort of, uh, without wishing excessively to blow, blow our own trumpet, we've been constantly ahead of the curve of officials on this, in spite of the fact that we're a minnow organisation, a minnow charity with a number of volunteers associated with us. And the government now has 200 officials working on the building safety crisis. And we're still awaiting a viable solution. I'll also just say a few words by introduction of the Leasehold Knowledge Partnership and how we came to be involved in all this. Uh, we're a registered charity in the Secretariat of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Leasehold and Commonhold Reform, which has about 185 members. Our patrons are the MPs Sir Peter Bottomley, Justin Madders and Sir Ed Davey, representing the three main parties in, in England and Wales. They are also the co-chairs of the All-Party Parliamentary Group, although because he's the Lib Dem party leader, Ed is replaced by 
the, the Lib Dem St Albans MP, Daisy Cooper, uh, who is very active on the building safety cladding issue. The simple narrative is that we've been campaigning to reform uh, leasehold tenure, which only exists in England and Wales, and which we regard as exploitative and out of date landlordism with roots in the Middle Ages. In modern terms, this means that flat owners don't own their flats, the land or the buildings, and only a long tenancy of time. As such, they are dealt with by tenant, as tenants by the courts. This matters in the building safety cladding crisis as it, as it is extremely difficult for leaseholders to take legal action against developers who have built a flawed block of flats. The leaseholders have to persuade the freehold owner or landlord to take action instead. And as the freeholders are basically anonymous investors in a building's income stream and are often based in jurisdictions such as the British Virgin Islands, why on earth would they do something as unremunerative as that, as litigating on behalf of the tenants in the building? In short, leasehold makes flat ownership more complicated and unfair than it should be. In 2017, we were up to our eyes exposing the doubling ground rent scandal, at last getting leasehold into the mainstream media and onto the parliamentary agenda. Then in June, the Grenfell tragedy occurred. In the following months, it dawned on us, although not officials, that this was a disaster that would impact all modern blocks of flats. We questioned whether leasehold would survive the scrutiny that would ensue. Since then, we have seen government wobble on dealing with this massive issue, now costed at 15 billion pounds. It is providing public money worth five billion pounds. There are some quibbles about that, but I won't, I won't distract on that, to remove the cladding on high rises. But there is still the unanswered question of where the rest of the money will come from and how much is really needed. Forced loans on leaseholders, the innocent consumers in all this, were being considered and possibly are still being considered. But there has been an impasse in imposing them as government has cold feet. Meanwhile, thousands of leaseholders have been handed wipeout bills of 70,000 to 80,000, in one case more than 150,000 pounds to repair these buildings. And some of these leaseholders are really uh, not affluent, shared owners. Uh, so they'll only own 25% of their flats, but they face 100% of the bill to make the building safe. Government has been remarkably slow to gather the importance of to, to understand the importance of all this. But just over a month ago, it did make a step which uh, I think was very encouraging. We think that it was very encouraging. Basically, the community sector was sacked and replaced with Michael Gove, and there seems to be some new thinking. He's making sympathetic noises. He doesn't think leaseholders should be paying anything for other people's errors. But how is he going to square the circle? We await an announcement which will hopefully take thousands of minor risk, low risk buildings out of scope of all this, and which will raise money from developers and the cladding manufacturers as this crisis, which has fallen on so many innocent consumer is a sector wide failing. But key to getting this uh, right and to for strengthening our arguments in this is the data. And so I'll now pass on to Martin and his presentation. Good, good afternoon. Thank you for that, Seb. Um, right, well, you can um, avoid looking at me. I'll, I'll put the uh, screen share on now. So, um, okay, let's see. Here we go. There's right, find the right screen. Okay. Okay, today, today we're talking about um, the role of data in the building safety crisis. Um, um, I was at a, a meeting with National Fire Chiefs Council um, the other day and someone said um, 
the, the data can be very misleading because sometimes we're only looking at small numbers. Um, but that fundamentally misses the point because um, sometimes one is a very big number um, if you're talking about a building burning down and sometimes one is a very irrelevant number. So it's, it's about how people use the data. And it's been rather obvious that um, there is some exceptionally good data out there that people haven't really used. Um, and there are huge areas where there's a lack of data. So um, I'm going to try and run through some of the bits of data that we either have or haven't got at the moment um, and how they're impacting on um, why it's taken so long to address the building safety crisis um, and where we might end up going with that data. So um, cladding crisis, um, as, as we've got it, or the building safety crisis, um, began with the Grenfell tragedy in June 2017. But facade fires on large blocks flats had gone back for decades before that. Um, the, um, the, 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 there was a tragedy in 2009 at a building called Lackamore House in Southwark, um, which resulted in, in a number of people um, dying and others being injured. Um, it's a gentleman called Sir Ken Knight, who has been a very uh, important person within um, the fire safety regime for many, many uh, years, um, produced a report for the government. Um, the, fire, the fire happened on the 3rd of July 2019, and he produced his report by the end of that month. And in there, he had this the statement that um, he didn't consider it was economically viable to make it a requirement to retrospectively fit sprinklers. Um, now, that, that comment has perhaps gone on to haunt the sector for um, uh, over a decade. Um, it has in there the caveat in the second sentence where he says, however, it's a matter for individual housing uh, housing owners and landlords to decide if automatic fire suppression is required as part of their fire safety management. Um, this sort of sets out one of the major problems that we have in, in this part of the housing sector. Um, um, individual housing owners, uh, by which I presume he meant the people who owned the flats, do not have the uh, authority to install their own sprinkler systems because that's likely to be uh, um, something that, 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 that takes place outside the, the, the element of the property that's demised to them. And of course, landlords only fit things and do things if they're charging someone else for the work. So anyway, we had um, Ken Knight producing this report out of uh, the Lackanon House Fire in 2009. Rather oddly, in 2012, the building research establishment did a very, very detailed look at data from around the world on the benefit of sprinkler systems. Um, huge report. Um, now, rather oddly, Sir Ken Knight also happened to be uh, involved with the, 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 the BRE, and he was a, a, a director. So um, the... The figures that, that, that jumped off the page at me when I read the report was that 
um, installation of sprinklers um, end up reducing the likelihood of a fatality um, in um, various types of property by 90% plus. Um, injuries, 60% plus. So it, it, it's always been considered um, around the world as a very, very viable system. Um, and yet we've not been fitting them in this country. Um, despite the data screaming at us, it saves lives. The one that surprised me was damage. Um, I had no idea. I assumed if you had sprinkler systems, it was going to be pouring water all over the place and you would therefore have the same level of damage as if the fire brigades turn up and put out the fire. But that's not what this report said. Um, it said you would be reducing the costs of damage caused to property in fires by, again, nearly 90%. Um, and being lucky enough to live in a house, I'm a bit surprised that it also tells me that sprinklers um, would be viable for my own home. But um, there we go. So we're sitting there with all of this data saying we should be fitting sprinklers, and yet nothing happened. Um, so um, with BRE, uh, there, if you analyse their data, what it suggests is there's about a one in 80,000 chance of a death in a house fire and a one in 40,000 chance of a death in a flat fire. So therefore, um, the suggestion is when fires occur in flats, uh, there is intrinsically a greater level of danger, but we're still looking at relatively low levels of risk. Okay, so back to our friend, Sir Ken again. And in 2016, the BRE produces a um, report which says, uh, if you read the second sentence onwards, with the exception of one or two unfortunate but rare cases, there is currently no evidence from these investigations to suggest that the current rec recommendations to limit vertical fire spread up the exterior of high-rise buildings is failing in their purpose. So here we are in April, the year before Grenfell is about to burn down with the government's building research establishment advising it sees the risks of external fire spread as very small. It's asserting its testing regime is working. It's not clear from reading that report what level of data that they've got that supports that claim. But nonetheless, we went in to 2017 with the government firmly of the view there was absolutely no problem with external facades and uh, no risk from, 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 from cladding. Okay, um, here's another bit of data which, which is a little odd. Um, this, is, this is data collated by the Home Office um, just prior to, 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 to Grenfell, okay? So it's showing fire-related fatalities in England in the year 2016-17. And it's part of a report that looked back, a longitudinal report the government had looking at fire safety data over a number of years. 
Now you'll see in there, it, 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 it puts the percentage of fires with a fatality at 0.7% in a house, 0.6% in low-rise flats, 0.8% in flats of four to nine stories, and back to 0.4% in um, flats on 10 stories above. So if you if you if you if you interpret that 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 data logically, it says the taller the building, the lower the chances are of a fatality in a fire. Now those statistics are clearly massively slanted as a result of the Grenfell tragedy. But it's very important to to, to if you could try and remember remember that data about the low-rise flats, four to nine storeys, compared to the high-rise. So what this data says is you are twice as likely to have a fatality in a medium-rise block of flats than you are in a fire um, in a high-rise block. Okay, so um, we get to June 2017. 72 people died in a cladding fire after they were advised by the fire authorities to stay put. Um, now, there were some very cruel comments by, made by um, uh, Rhys Mogg, where he suggested that if people had used their common sense, they would have got out. Um, but with all due respect to Mr Rhys Mogg, um, if you have a fireman telling you to stay put, um, then um, that's what you're logically going to do. The fire authorities would have been using the stairways. They would have not wanted people there. Um, as I found out, we had a fire at our site recently, and like the vast majority of fires, it was contained within a flat. Um, the fire authorities arrived. Um, they uh, were very keen to ensure that everyone didn't say the stay in their flat and they didn't try and evacuate. And it was quite difficult to explain to some people after Grenfell why you should stay in your flat. But the whole purpose of uh, uh, the designs that we have is that fire should be contained. Fire should not be spreading from flat to flat. But unfortunately, that's not what happened in Grenfell. The fire tragically spread up the outside of the building and so many people died. So we're now going to jump forward to um, 2021 because since the tragedy, um, the uh, government has been desperately reaching out for sources of data. It discovered um, that uh, it didn't actually know how many buildings we had. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've talked at the, um, at the ODI before about the um, complete lack of reliable data on um, leasehold properties. So nowadays, the government um, have, have, have gone to all sorts of sources, including the um, Ordnance Survey, to try and get some robust figures to know what it's doing, why it's doing, and how it's doing it. To be honest, they are still in an utter mess because that data is still not reliable. So um, 
we have here, the current figures they're using, um, they have an estimate of 12,500 buildings um, above 18 metres, residential buildings. Um, if you look at the table on the right-hand side, um, that then they exclude 500 of those buildings uh, 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 as being slightly uh, different from the, 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 the rest that they're, they're, they're looking at. They, uh, they've um, created a very, very, very round figure of 6,000 buildings in the social sector above 18 metres that they need to be concerned about and exactly 6,000 uh, buildings in the private sector. The chances of that being an accurate number is, of course, absolutely zero, but that's what we're working from. When we get to buildings under 80 metres, we're at an even more round estimate. Um, we're talking about um, 78,000 buildings. Um, um, and uh, the sources for that data are, are quite mixed. Nobody's really sure how reliable it is. As they pointed out, they're, they're using some ordnance survey data um, and topographic identifiers, which is not exactly the most reliable source to use. So there we are. We're planning the um, what to do with building safety crisis without even being quite sure how many buildings we've got. So if we look at the um, monthly data um, that the government now publishes, it says... Um, that 94% of all identified high-rise residential buildings in England are completed or have started remediation. So this is buildings that have aluminium composite material cladding, um, i.e. the same that was on Grenfell. Um, and that, that, that number has gone up uh, in terms of remediation by one building in September. So we're not remediating at a very fast pace still. So you delve into those dumb numbers um, and um, suddenly your 94% disappears when we get to the private sector. Um, and we still have a very large number of buildings where um, we haven't actually removed the cladding. We've got 30 buildings there where remediation started, the cladding is still on. 12, where there's a plan in place, but they haven't even started removing the cladding. And 10, where they've got a plan to remove the cladding. So here we are, four and a half years on, more than four and a half, from Grenfell. We still have um, 50, 52 buildings where um, we still have ACM cladding on in the private sector. Um, it is not a fast pace of remediation. The other thing that um, happened uh, right from the outset was um, government said um, building owners should do the right thing. From day one, they accepted that it wasn't the leaseholders' fault that we had a cladding problem. Um, it, it was either the developer or the cladding manufacturers or someone's fault. Um, what their data now shows, and this does look as if it's quite reliable, um, 
is that out of the 220 buildings in the private sector that have ACM cladding, only 50% of them have seen the building owner do the right thing. Now, it says there in their files um, that they have 89 buildings where the developer or the freeholder has committed to remediate their building. Um, but we assume that in the vast majority of cases, that is going to be the developer. There's no reason for a freeholder to want to or even necessarily be able to fix the building. Um, what is very scary is the number of 21 buildings there. Um, it says um, that's the number where warranty claim has been accepted. So out of the 220 buildings, less than 10% have been able to make a warranty claim, which rather suggests that the warranty system that we have in this country is not fit for purpose. But as of the moment, nobody's even beginning to ask that question. Um, the next figure on that page, 106, is um, the proportion of buildings that the government has accepted it will help pay to fix. Now, none of us um, have ever felt that it should be the government paying to fix these buildings. Um, government regulations may have been at fault, but the government did not build these buildings. But nonetheless, we've got 106 buildings in there that the taxpayer is being required to support. Um, and that seems very wrong. Um, there can't be um, that many buildings where um, it's not possible to find a developer who should have fixed the problem. The other issue that we've then got, and this, this, this wording from this government advice, it's, it's, it's slightly sort of um, uh, reverse logic. But um, the, uh, um, uh, the two, 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 two um, graphs there, the bottom one shows um, uh, those buildings that are not in the private fund, i.e. are not being funded by the government. And the one at the top shows that, that, that those that are being funded by the government. And what you can see from that is that um, the buildings that are subject to government funding are being remediated at a much, much slower pace than those where the developer did decide to do the right thing. And I think there's a very legitimate criticism of the fact that the government is taking too long to process the funding to get these buildings remediated. And remember, this is only the tiny subset of buildings that have ACM cladding on. Um, we have a whole much larger group of buildings that don't have ACM cladding, but other forms of cladding, which will continue to cause problems. So um, one of the features that we've had um, as a result of the building safety crisis is that when the fire authorities um, have uh, reached the conclusion that they feel these buildings aren't safe, they require the building owner to come up with um, uh, an interim measure. Um, and the option that you have is you either come up with interim uh, measures as building owner, which allow people to stay in the building or they're decanted. 
uh, in which case people are made homeless. So the most common um, uh, interim measure that has been used is something called waiting watch. And this is where you have a group of people walking around your building day in, day out. It costs a fortune and there are huge questions about its effectiveness. Um, the cladding leaseholders have been asking from the outset, uh, what's the technical justification? Where's the data to support waking watch? It is a very old policy that comes out of the commercial sector um, uh, when um, your fire alarm had failed at something like a hotel. You would temporarily put some people in for a matter of a week or two while you fixed the alarm. But nonetheless, the waking watch system has been in place. Some sites have had waking watch for over three years. Um, it's cost a fortune for the leaseholders. The government is helping fund some sites now, um, but not many. So this slide is um, about the fire that occurred in Docklands uh, earlier this year. Um, and it was quite a nasty fire. Um, there is currently um, an ongoing investigation by uh, London Fire Brigade into what went wrong there. Um, it was a site that had waking watch and the leaseholders surveyed their um, residents immediately after the fire to understand what was the basis that they used to get out of the building. What told them that they needed to get out of that building fairly quickly? And as you can see from the list on the right-hand side, there is one category that's missing, and that is waking watch. Um, so these people are paying for a waking watch. Um, it's been on site. It has not worked. Just one person out of the 224 people that were asked said that Waking Watch played any role in them evacuating the building. By far and away, the biggest and most influential uh, uh, um, uh, contact point was via their WhatsApp group. So this data was, was made available to us in May. Um, we told the um, all-party group uh, uh, of MPs about this data. Um, some months ago. Um, I finally got asked two days ago by London Fire Brigade if we could provide them with this information. Um, it was data that's sitting there. It's very simple data. Um, it says, here's a system that's not working, apparently. Um, and nobody's been looking. Maybe they will do soon. Okay, so we now go back to our friend, um, Sir Ken, who is still around and playing a very important role. Um, he is no longer a director of the BRE. Uh, he is, however, a significant advisor to the government. Most recently, um, he's been involved in um, creating the government's building safety advice, much of which has caused utter chaos in the sector. Then in July this year, um, he and Dame Judith Hackett and uh, one or two other people produced uh, a report for the government which came to the radical conclusion we do not need to worry about buildings under 18 metres. 
And as you can see, they assert in their report, um, there is a risk aversion developing in the market. Um, now, having looked at their report, I can't see any data that they've used particularly to reach their conclusions. And um, it, 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 I remind you of that slide we looked at earlier, which says that in a building effectively below 18 metres, you have twice the chance of a fatality as you do in a building above 18 metres when there's a fire. So how the, 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 this group can assert as experts, there is no uh, systemic risk in buildings under 80 metres seems utterly illogical. So where are we? We're now at the point where, um, as the result of the uh, continuing crisis, um, flat sales have collapsed. Um, flat sales are down by 50% by value and 60% by volume compared to where we were in 2018. We still do not have reliable data for planning what we do next. And some of the data that we did have that was very useful has been ignored for some reasons. And until we join all of the dots and until we use that data effectively, we are not going to find a solution to the building safety crisis and it will run for at least another three to four years. So I think that's about the end of my uh, presentation. So if, uh, if we've got some questions, I'm happy to answer them. Great. Uh, thank you for that quite sobering presentation, Martin. Um, yeah, just a reminder, if anyone has any questions, put them in the chat uh, so we can avoid people speaking over each other. Uh, I, I did have one question just to get us started. I was wondering if you could um, just share a bit more detail about from who or what kind of data you would like to see more openly available to help address this crisis. Well, the, the, well there's a, a range of data that the, the, the Home Office has, has been very reliable in collecting some of the, the information it has, um, but we, we do not have an organised um, system for holding building information. Um, it is part of the building safety bill, so it will happen at some point in the future. But, um, you know, we've had computerized, computerized building information management systems since the late 1980s. And I remember because I was involved in it. And um, uh, for some reason, uh, that, uh, that data keeps being lost. And, and it's, uh, it's been very consistent throughout the cladding crisis that when, um, when people need to find out what's happened at the building, what the building was actually made of, um, suddenly the developer discovers that they lost the computer file. So um, <laughs> we, we perhaps just need a better backup system for the country. Hi. Um, thank you. I can see there's a question from Catherine. Would, would you like to read it out, Catherine, or would you like me to? Take the I can read that. I can read. So, um, yeah, for the recording, it says, Martin, where do you get your fat sale data? Oh, it's dead, dead easy. It's not complicated at all. Um, the uh, uh, land registry price paid data. Um, the uh, the the 
the figures I quoted were some data that I extracted for the, the Telegraph. Um, we've done it for the Times as well. Um, the only thing you have to be slightly careful of is um, there are errors in the land registry data you need to filter out, and you need to wait about three to four months before you examine the data because there's a, a backlog in recording um, information into their files. Great, thank you. Uh, and there's also a comment from Matt. I wondered if you wanted to bring this up or if you had a question related to this, Matt. Hi, yeah. No, it wasn't so much a question. It was an observation, really. I just thought it was really interesting to take Martin's point and say, actually, in the year post-Grenfell, the 0.4% figure went to 0.1%. Uh, and then the, the next category down in terms of height halved from 0.8 to 0.4. So I think that's sort of whereas the, the one to three story number went up. So I think it sort of speaks to Martin's point that we need reliable factual risk assessment as opposed to arbitrary lines in the sand that were maybe written for political reasons in response to Grenfell. Yeah. And, and I mean, the other, the other point on that, Matt, is when you're looking at um, percentages that are down at the, that level, you're going to have a, a, a lot of potential variance every year. And if government just sits there and goes, oh, well, we're down at 0.1% this year, we don't need to worry anymore. That, that can be very dangerous. And I think that's where that's where we got to pre-Grenfell. It's how BRE produced its data and said, you know, we think with one or two unfortunate exceptions, there is very little risk. Um, and that's not how it works at all. Yeah, and I see that, 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 that Catherine said, yeah, fatality is a small, maybe look at injuries. I mean, that, that brings out a... a fundamental divergence between what government is saying in terms of um, the, 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 the fact it says everyone is overreacting because there's very few fatalities and what the, um, uh, what the industry is saying, which is it's not fatalities is the concern, it's damage to property. The buildings insurers are, are concerned about the fact that um, if we are getting fires and, and it's costing money, that impacts the premium rates and the same with the surveyors. So yeah, um, injuries, but, but my, if you go back to my figure about um, uh, um, uh, sprinkler systems and um, the reduction in damage to property that uh, uh, happens when you've got a sprinkler system, you know, it goes down by 90% or 88% was the figure. Um, it, 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 it's that sort of data that, that's just as important as the fatalities data. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. Are there any other questions or comments? Yeah, I've got a question. I've got a question. We've got a very interesting visitor because this is a gentleman from Australia watching. Ted Balio is the ex-premier for Victoria. So he, he led the high-rise task force um, Following, uh, uh, following various problems they had in, in, in their country. Hello, Martin. I'm, Hi. I'm half awake. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good to hear you. Um, do you, do you tell it, how are things going over there at the moment, Ted? Uh, in, in the cladding arena, we have, um, we, we are progressing in our state uh, in accordance with the plan. We've got, uh, um, a list of buildings which are being 
um, remediated by an agency, a government agency that was established. They're working their way through it, and uh, the existence of that is uh, of that agency and that work and the commitment pre-commitment of government funds has produced um, calm and confidence in the industry in our state. Um, I think perhaps the state of New South Wales are a little bit further behind us. Yeah. Okay. And how are you doing with your data? Because I know we, last time we talked, we were we were talking about the um, the what 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 the, what the government was doing to collect data, so you knew what buildings you've got and which ones were high risk, and medium risk, and low risk. Well, the difference between the work that's being done was that uh, at least in our state there was a proactive movement, uh, and uh, we went out and searched for the buildings uh, using every available um, tool, including uh, the, the knowledge of local inspectors, and that created a register of buildings which ought to have then been risk assessed by an expert panel. And that work has continued, but I think on a monthly basis there are still buildings being found is the word we used. So I don't think there's an immediate uh, data source that we could go to and say, press a button and, and this is the number of buildings involved. It, it was done organically. It was done um, <coughs> in an analog kind of way. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, at some point we'll try and get you back for a chat in Parliament again because I think um, I think this issue is going to run for quite a while, isn't it? I'll be happy to do that. I just um, forgive me. I'm not turning my video on because I'm basically sitting here in my jammies. So. <laughs> Who knows? Other people may be doing the same. Thanks. Now, I will say it is interesting because I, the reason why I'm on this call is because I've been fascinated about where the UK data is, uh, what the UK data is based on. And uh, uh, I see figures of the number of homeowners affected or people affected being in the several million and then a figure of a few hundred buildings and the inconsistencies, I think, have been... A, a, a bit of a puzzle for me, so I was interested to hear, to hear what you said, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um um yeah. It, it's very clear that we we still have some big problems with with data over here, and uh, uh, there seem to be some p political interest in talking the numbers down sometimes, and then they want to talk them up at other times. Um, so uh, I, I think we we still have to get to a. a, a <coughs> consensus point on on what we do with the numbers and um you know going forward there is an acceptance that we've got to have a a lot more effective data about individual buildings um it's just a question of how on earth they're going to define the standard of what inf that information is um and you talk you talk to the various technocrats and they tell you that they either do or don't agree that the iso standard that we've got out there does or does not work. So there's still more to do. Um, I saw someone has mentioned the, um, the the Leeds project. Yeah, we looked at that a, a while ago. I was going to mention it, but there's there's so many 
sort of different um, options as to what we talked about today. I, I ended up leaving them out. But yeah, we are aware of that. Don't worry. Just, just for context, if anyone is watching this recording back, I'm not sure if the comments are included. Uh, it's about some analysis done on the Home Office data by University of Leeds and Phil Murphy. Um, I'm going to see there's a question from Harry there in the chat as well. I can uh, read it out if we use it. It says, what's happening with the government data on total amount of leasehold dwellings too low compared to leasehold knowledge? Partnerships, six million plus calculation. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, the the, um, the 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 original number that the government produced on the size of the leasehold sector was was based on some work that we did in 2013. Um, uh, they didn't act, actually have their own number at the time, um, um, and they they assumed it was about one million. Um, we produced a figure of 5.37 million, um, but that included socially rented properties. Um, and eventually we agreed with the government to produce a, 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 um, what they said was a number of four, just over 4 million. So um, uh, in terms of the total number of um, homes that are impacted, i.e. flats, um, it's not the six million because the six million included houses, but we are probably looking at five million or so properties in the country. Um, so uh, it, it is a lot of housing stock. Um, it is growing quite rapidly. And the fact that we don't really know what's going on. Um, you remember last, last Christmas I gave a talk where we um we looked at the the um, the GLA figures and how they were absolutely ridiculous, and we got the audience to um, uh, calculate their own better figure, um, uh, which ended up being nearly three times as as large as that of the GLA. So, yeah, there's still work to do in that area. See, there's another question: Have you talked to GeoPlace and how UPRN can help here? Um, I'm not sure what UPRN stands for. Unique, unique property reference numbers or whatever it is. Um, 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 yeah, there are several several data sources um, and um, um, we've talked with the ODI as well about um, how, how we might try and integrate some of those data sources because another one is the um, uh, uh, post office address file. Um, is uh, the path as it's called um, and, and that gives you a fairly good indication of whether you've got multiple properties um, within a single post code with the same 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 core address i.e a block of flats um, um, yeah I, but but the trouble is there's you know nobody else really wants to do the work um, so uh, until we do um, there is another um, in terms of assessing which buildings are at risk, um, there is actually a, a wonderful data source, but nobody's sort of decided to go and talk to them or work out how to use it yet. Um, and, and that's Google. Um, now, Google's not exactly ODI focused in that they, they're proprietary, but nonetheless, um, they do hold um, uh, uh, um, 
you know, an exceptional amount of data which would uh, and could be used to help us work out how many properties have got uh, are likely to have cladding. But again, the government, I mean, we, we suggested that to the government, I think, six, seven months ago, and I've not heard that they're, they're doing anything. We've got about five minutes left, if anyone has any final questions. You, you've got a question about will the slides be available? Uh, yes. Are, are you going to put them out? Well, I mean, we'll put them on our website. Um, the whole talk will be available on the ODI's YouTube channel. That's the that's probably the best way, best place to catch up with it. Yeah. There's one more question. Uh, the data appears to discourage move, removing thousands of low-rise buildings from scope. What are Michael Gove's options here? Mm, yeah. Well, since that comes to Seb, that's us asking the question. Yeah, it, it's it's difficult. We don't we don't know what the new Secretary of State is going to do. Um, that bit of data that I showed earlier on about um, fatalities in under uh, in in mid-rise buildings. I mean, to me, that suggests you can't sit there and ignore those buildings and say there isn't isn't a risk that we need to be looking at. Um, but um, government will have to work out what it wants to do. Um, in the same way, it has to work out what it does with higher risk buildings. So things like um, retirement and care homes, there's obviously a different policy that you need in sort of managing um, that sort of problem than you might in an ordinary residential block. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's uh, one comment, very useful and somewhat shocking for you as I'm from Grenfell. Certainly true. Um, Sebastian, I don't know if you had any final comments, comments that you wanted to in these last couple of minutes? Uh, no, not really, but uh, thank everybody for coming and special thanks to um, Ted Bailey for um, logging in in his pyjamas to this, to this talk. And uh, I, I don't think I can uh, emphasise how, how welcome your comments have been from Australia um, in analysing how we in, in, in the UK have managed, or if that's not the right word, um, the building safety crisis hitherto, and I uh, very much look forward to further contributions from you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm not sure we got many uh, Australian attendees to these lunchtime lectures, might be the first. <laughs> uh, oh, there is one last question from Richard. Uh, is there a similar challenge with commercial property? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, we, we've seen various um, commercial buildings have burned down um, and I know that the um, uh, uh, the, the fire experts um, um, in, in, um, in in that part of the, the sector are very concerned that we we don't have sprinklers um, the rules apparently changed that you you are less of an obligation to install sprinklers than you did before and I think what was it we saw the Ocado um, uh, warehouse burned down. I think that was a fire that went on for a couple of days. So yeah, there are there are problems in in the commercial sector. Well, I think that's a good 
point to stop. So to say thank you again, uh, Martin and Sebastian, for taking part in the lunchtime lecture, and thank you everyone for joining and for all your questions. Uh, as Freya said, the recording will be available on YouTube, um, so you can refer back to it there. Great. Thank you all. Well, Have a great you. rest of your Friday. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.